1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of the book, The Queen. And this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 22nd, 2019. This is usually the point at which I tell you all the various sports things we're going to talk about, but this show is not going to be like those other shows. Last week, I went on the Long Form podcast to talk about my so-called journalism career. and At the end of that episode, I came to believe that I needed to do a long interview with someone about their journalism career in the hope of starting some kind of lucrative Ponzi scheme. Joining me in the Washington, D.C. studio. Not Stefan Fatsis. he's off at the Scrabble Championship this week, we miss him. But joining me this week, special guest, I'm expecting him to bare his soul in exchange for three small bottles of water. It is Dead Spins, Dave McKenna.
2: Welcome, Dave. Oh, my pleasure. Author of The
1: Queen. <laughs> you think that's a little too self-promotional?
2: Well, I'm gonna use it from now on too. I like
1: the way it sounds. Uh, you're gonna ratio me because we are gonna talk so much more about you than about me. Me? Your favorite topic? Yes. So I wanted to start by telling people how we met. I started at City Paper in 2002, which was my first journalism job. And this story actually becomes a little bit about the fallibility of memory because this didn't happen until 2003. But I was opening up the paper. It was a requirement that we read the paper every week. Makes sense. And there was a column in there by the City Paper sports columnist. And it was about Louisiana quarterbacks because uh, Washington at that point had this guy, Patrick Ramsey, little known, little remembered guy. He went to Tulane. And so McKenna here wrote about the long and storied history of quarterbacks from Louisiana. And among them was Peyton Manning, who went to Isidore Newman School, which is the school that I went to through uh, eighth grade. So it's a subject that I have some personal knowledge and history with. And in the column... McKenna wrote that Newman is outside New Orleans. And so this greatly offended me. How could this erroneous fact about the school that I went to get into the paper that I worked at? Clearly, the guy who was writing it was a clown. And so there is a correction, we'll link to it on our show page, so this correction can be memorialized. (laughs) There is a correction that says, no, actually, Dave McKenna got this wrong. Newman is within the city limits of New Orleans. What are your memories of that episode?
2: I think about uh, that's how our relationship started and it's It's been a long and loving relationship ever since. It's like a couple that meets after one runs over the other in the car <laughs> because corrections were back in the day. Corrections were a very big
1: deal so Eric Wimble, who is the editor of City Paper at the time, you didn't work in the office, so you had a different experience. But when we had a correction in our stories at the next story meeting, we had to explain to the staff why we got something wrong and it's a good lesson like you didn't want to have to be the guy who did that at the meeting but i can affirm that corrections were a bad and they thing. put
2: your name like they said dave mckenna got it wrong was, It didn't say corrected
1: don't... by josh levine and <laughs> no, column.
2: he was right i couldn't argue so i you know i couldn't hate him he got me but we started on a correction which again
1: it was a good rom-com meet cute So when I started at the City Paper, I hadn't had a journalism job before. I hadn't lived in D.C. before. And part of our job was to find stories, to go out into the city and um, figure out what's going on, get, get story ideas, and again, report them at a meeting to the whole staff, which again was terrifying. But one of the ways that I learned about D.C., especially as somebody who's interested in sports, was from McKenna, both from reading your columns and from you actually driving me around like we would go to games or go to shows and you would point stuff out and so first i just want to start by praising you and that i i was lucky to end up at the place that had the best sports columnist in america which i firmly believe number two you're always so nice to me even though i was such an (laughs) asshole to you with that correction but i wanted to start by asking so one of the first memories that i have is i don't remember where we were going you pointing out Uline Arena to me and saying this was the spot where the Beatles played their first show in the US this happened in 1964 you were really young then you grew up in the area just like maybe that specifically but also in generally like how did you know stuff like that how did you acquire your knowledge of basically everything that happened in DC
2: well you're you're way too nice but um but back to me the uh I, I, and I'm from here. I, like I, I just was incredibly interested in my hometown. It's an, and it, and and not uh, just for provincial reasons. It's a it's an amazing for a guy who likes sports like me and politics. If you grow up here, you have to care about all politics. And there, there's no like the, the way sports and, and politics and well, specifically the civil rights movement intersect in Washington D.C. Fascinated me and the history of sports in Washington D.C. and from when
1: you were a kid or like for no, it was
2: it was prof- it, well. Uh, I mean I, I'm from here so I got things I I remember things I'm interested in <laughs> and the Beatles clearly was something I was interested in and for many of the same reasons that none of the, none of the sports st- the stuff that I ended up writing about in the city paper I ended up trying to find stories that you know should have been told long before I ever typed um and and the Beatles thing like it was in a building the Washington Coliseum also called Uline Arena uh, in a bad neighborhood, and it was just forgotten. It was like when I took you there. It was, did we go inside? It was like a truck. It was like used as a parking lot for a while, and before that, it was just a trash dump. It's and
1: now an REI. It's now Actually, an REI it's a fancy development. There's no,
2: there's, yeah, but I mean, but it was in what was you know in a neighborhood that that was forgotten uh, at the time, and just overgrown and everything. It was and, and, and stuff like that bothered me, and so I tried to. You know, that, that was where I would take anyone who came to town. I would take them to the, this is where the Beatles, like, how
1: could, you know, there was no, yeah.
2: there was no commemoration. There was nothing there. It was just a trash for literally, literally a trash dump for years. They kept trash in the building.
1: I promise I'm not going to keep gassing you up for the whole podcast, but that was actually like legit kind of inspirational to me to know that there, as somebody whose job it was to look for stories. And I think as journalists, we often like complain about how hard it is, but like, that this place literally where the Beatles played their first show um, in the U.S. was a trash dump. Just the fact that there were all these stories in D.C. that were hidden that hadn't been written about that were there for us to find was like that, I remember that moment. And you were able to put stories like that in the paper most weeks. Sometimes you would, you know, write about why there weren't any black kickers. Uh, you would kind of repeat that uh, <laughs> o- over, over many years. years. There, were re- there were some recurring themes That you would visit. But, um, you know, that one is one that stands out to me. And you also mentioned D.C. and the civil rights movement. Another one that had a big impression on me was the story about Elgin Baylor and how when he was at Spingarn High School in the 50s, a black school, um, this was one of the greatest players of all time was never written about by The Washington Post.
2: Never. And the Elgin Baylor thing is something I, I think about constantly. He's the archetype of a story I was looking for because a guy who should have been had a park named for him and statues in DC was just totally forgotten. Uh, like, y- I, I get weepy. <laughs> I mean, I literally get thinking about him, like his story. Because if you talk to people his age around here who saw him play, or people in the NBA when he first came in before his knees went out, he still his numbers ended up being amazing. But he was—he's a, a god to these people. I had, you know, the, he was the greatest thing basketball had ever seen. You know, the first guy to, to hang time was—he invented it. Um, and yet, he grew up in a city um, where. He couldn't play in the park. Like he's describing a story about his boy at home was a few blocks from the U.S. Capitol building, and D.C. was so segregated that he was not allowed to play in the park across the street from his house. And news was segregated in a similar fashion where, you know, a white guy named Jimmy Wexler broke the city scoring record for, uh, for schoolboy hoops uh, in a game, and he got, he got what he called a Super Bowl headline. Assume, like the, the kind, you, you, It was a, a banner headline across the length of the page. And Elgin Baylor broke Wexler's record and was in like paragraph six of a story about another game.
1: Yeah, I think Wexler said that his headline was bigger than any actual story that was ever written about Baylor.
2: Yeah, and Wexler considered himself a fraud. Uh, he was a wonderful guy to talk to and great stories. And they ended up having a, a match game against each other where he saw and he said, you know, Baylor made me, you know, showed. Me was that a, I was.
1: a game that was conducted in secret or was it actually played open to the public?
2: It was open to the public it, and they charged money, but it was only the DC schools tried to ban the public schools, which were uh, then legally segregated, all white or all black. A white kid from Anacostia named McCaffrey, who ended up being a, a sports writer, he was in, in school and he was the one who organized, he got players for the white team and when the school system found out about the game, they threatened to expel him from school as a senior. And he did it anyway. And uh, it was held at Terrell Junior High School in, in front of an uh, entirely black crowd. Well, uh, that was the only time Baylor had played against uh, white guys in an official organized game. He played against them at playgrounds. Like people all over town, the best players would travel to Kelly Miller Park over in northeast Washington to try to you know see this this legend, Elgin Baylor, to see what he was like. And uh They ended up, uh, they charged money and like people hanging from the rafters for that game and everything.
1: In New Orleans in the late 60s, early 70s, my dad actually played in a game when he was a Newman, in fact, circling back. (laughs) Oh, outside of town. My dad played in a secret game against uh, a black school because they weren't allowed to have integrated basketball games even for public consumption. It had to be like a kind of jamboree practice, like with no crowd so it's interesting to me that in D.C. this wasn't allowed in the normal course of things but when they had this like very rare match game they did actually have it for public consumption and sell tickets
2: yeah and another thing about Elgin Baylor that, that makes him perfect you know like for, for my kind of stories he graduated high school in 1954 um, and two months before I believe it was two months um, that game was held that he played Jimmy West was two, two months before Brown versus the Board of Education uh, made the, this sort of segregation that D.C. Uh, enforced very rigidly uh, illegal. And D.C., to its credit, after a heinous – its heinous history, they did implement – they were the first big city to implement uh, – the, the to try to follow uh, Brown v. Board of Education and correct the wrongs. Uh, they, they immediately integrated the schools uh, with by the next school year, which created a bunch of uh, – Incredible, uh, interesting sports stories also of firsts, racial
1: firsts. So you wrote a thing for Deadspin after the Ralph Northam blackface thing happened about your childhood in Falls church and the things that you remember and didn't remember. So when you're talking about segregation and racism in this area, how much of that— were you conscious of and how much of it is stuff that you only realize in retrospect? Like, is part of your interest in these stories, like your own blindness to it growing up?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, Falls Church of Virginia is, the I believe, six miles from the, the border of D.C. And again, when I was growing up in the late 60s, like the, the, what I wrote about, there's a neighborhood called James Lee. The movie theater that I went to was on the border of, right next to James Lee, the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, the blacks could not go – they had to enter in the back. The, 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 what we always heard they had to go into the back of the theater if they could come in at all. And uh, and the roads were not paved. And even in, as of in the, after the turn of the, this, this century, the two thousands, uh, I went over there, and the roads were not paved in the James Lee neighborhood. And this is and this is again mere miles from the the, the, the border of Washington D.C. Um, so stuff like that. It, uh, definitely, there's there's. Uh, I mean, it, it's a fascinating story, no matter where you come from, or that you know people would treat people this way <laughs> they could get away with it so uh, i'm sure that is a part of what drew me like you know some sort of uh, uh this sounds too crazy but i mean you know some sort of trying to to write a wrong you know to tell a story that wasn't told because of uh, for all the the wrong reasons it wasn't told
1: yeah i mean that was something that was like pretty explicit in your coverage of gary mays we talked about gary mays with you on the podcast last year the one-armed black legend of DC sports who died last year. Elgin Baylor was another one of these legends. As you said, there's a big difference between them in terms of fame and renown, but also I think a big difference in that Gary was willing and happy to talk about his experiences with you and with other people. And Elgin Baylor until very recently was not really willing to Go there. Do you have any sense of why that was for him? Had, when you did finally interview him, did he talk about why he kind of hesitated to talk about his upbringing in D.C.?
2: He said it hurt. You know, like to, he'd rather you know deal with the, the comfortable parts of his life than the parts where he couldn't play basketball. In the park across the street from his house, merely because of the color of his skin. And you know, this is a guy who had to face his greatness eventually in life because he really was an amazing, special athlete who was not recruited by any schools in D.C. And I, I mean, I think that's why he, he didn't talk. And whereas Gary uh, came back to, you know, Elgin Baylor left here in 54 and, and you know, he, with Gary Mays, they went to a college of Idaho with, you know, him, three guys from D.C. There's another kid from Dunbar whose name escapes me at the time right now. But uh, uh, they, they take a train to Idaho and they, they take this college of Idaho that no one ever heard of. And they go and have an undefeated season in 1954, 55. I think Baylor then went on to greatness. Took he went to College of to Seattle University and uh, took them to the Final Four, and then Minneapolis Lakers and Lakers and a Hall of Fame career. And I think he would rather you know stick to the, to those days than to the days. I mean, when he, he left
1: DC behind, like mentally and physically. Correct. And Gary came back and was like a DC guy. And there were people here who you would talk to for your columns, but also just like around in life who remembered him. So this was the place where you know some terrible things were done to Gary Mays, but also where he was a legend.
2: Yeah, and he was, he was a happy guy. I mean, like Gary used to say, it was the way it was. That's, you know, you're like a teenager doesn't think about fighting the system as much as, you know, getting through the day, finding a game. And uh, it was the way it was. That's what he used to say. He also graduated in 1954.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. watching Muhammad Ali was a big thing for you on Wide World of Sports. Was that kind of your first like sports memory or is that just a thing that stands out because he was the greatest of all time?
2: It, well, he was such a big deal. I can't really explain if you weren't there how big a deal he was. I mean, he, he, he was an alien. No, no one, you know, not only for his handsomeness and, and his the beauty of his punches, but for his, you know, his politics, no one did stuff like that before Ali. No one spoke up. And he made speaking up as big a part of his persona as his jab. I mean, so if you grow up with Ali, like, he was an unforgettable presence. I don't know that he meant any more to me than he meant to anybody else my age. Uh, you know, he he was just
1: special. <laughs> <laughs> was he cool in your household because he opposed the Vietnam War? Yes. Like, was that?
2: Yeah, my parents were very, very lefties, and he was a hero to my dad.
1: Yeah. Speaking of lefty sports things, was there any discussion or consciousness that you recall when you are growing up about the uh, Washington NFL team nickname?
2: No, it was not on the radar, I don't think anywhere. I mean, very small circles. I think in the early 70s, it became an issue internally where they changed the lyrics of the fight song because some Native Americans had you know, raised the issue with them. But to, to me, I was totally blind to that until very late in life. I didn't think about that at all. I mean, blind spot.
1: And you're a big Maryland basketball fan, right?
2: Huge Maryland basketball you fan n- growing up. Have because you
1: seen Tom McMillan being an asshole on Twitter recently?
2: I have not, but I, I saw he was with Epstein and Trump, and he's in that video of them partying in 1992. It's McMillan, Epstein, and Trump.
1: So Tom McMillan is a legendary Maryland basketball player who became a politician. The thing I was referring to is that he is carrying water for the NCAA, talking about how NCAA athletes make more... Money after taxes than administrators or something is, like this that? This is
2: very hurtful uh, because he, I remember uh, the cover of him in, as a high school kid in Pennsylvania, the Sports Illustrated showing up at my door when I'm like eight, seven or eight years old. And there's Tom McMillan on the cover from Mansfield, Pennsylvania. This, you know, He was all-world – he was the highest the, – the biggest recruit ever. And he plays – he ends up at Maryland. The school when baseball left town in 1971 – there was the Skins and there was Maryland basketball. They were the big deals. There was, you know, the Georgetown basketball program was nothing at the time. There was nothing else. Maryland basketball was massive, and Tom McMillan was the first you know, superstar to play there. And so he, he was a big deal. And so finding him taking bad positions and partying with <laughs> pedophiles is not a, not a great thing.
1: I mentioned some recurring McKenna features slash columns. One of my all-time favorites is the Remember the Titans is a Lie series. Um, (laughs) TM, trademark. So T.C. Williams High School is in Virginia. Is it around where you grew up? Yeah. Not far. Not far. And Herman Boone, played by Denzel Washington, in the movie is portrayed as a guy who brought racial reconciliation to the school in this community. And starting when you were at the city paper and continuing to deadspin, you wrote about how the story is not, That simple? Uh, Can you explain to the the people what the story
2: is? Well, to me, Boone was like he was a legendary not nice guy. Uh, Like he he lost his job in the real world.
1: That's not represented at all in the movie, though. No,
2: he's he's presented as as Gandhi. And the truth is he lost his job for, you know, after accusations of, of hitting kids. And he went away in shame. And then this movie comes up. And the, the movie history has replaced the actual history of the school. Like the truth is T.C. Williams in 1971 was by far the largest school in uh, Virginia. It it was the, the – there was no racial integration. It, there were three schools that had already been racially integrated years earlier or consolidated. But consolidation wasn't as romantic a term in Hollywood as integration. So they keep saying integrated and, and it's – just hokum, the, like the, the racial makeup of the T.C. Williams football team years before Boone got there was essentially the same. As so it, was. it would
1: have been bizarre if they didn't win because they were the biggest go, school.
2: They, go look up, you know, I, look, I, I am kind of obsessed, <laughs> obsessed with this, but you go look up, they, they were supposed to crush everybody and they destroyed everybody. They were, you know, it's one of the greatest football teams, of, uh, high school football teams of all time. Yeah, like a, the defensive end had 64 sacks or something like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How many of those came when you were playing offensive tackle? Because the numbers are kind of <laughs> skewed from that era a little bit. There is kind of a larger theme there of a, of debunkery. You know, some of your oeuvre is uh, wanting to elevate stories that haven't been told. Another part of it is wanting to tear, tear stories down. That have been told too much, and this one falls into the latter category.
2: I mean, because Boone went on to—I mean, he—he be, he became a, a public speaker, and he was getting at one point he was getting twenty five thousand dollars a pop to to retell his life as if it was the character's life, to play the character, you know, and yeah. as his own. He adopted Denzel Washington's bio, the character played by Denzel Washington, as his own, and including the, the goodness, and that just you know, I, that, that, that bugged me. Because no one ever looked up. Everyone just would repeat the movie.
1: And know? there was a guy who was like the Herman Boone truther who would talk to you for all of these columns. Oh, and man. that guy was like very upset. I don't remember the details. You'll have to fill it, them in. But was very upset that this guy was going around, parading around like he was, you know, uh, that his shit he's didn't He's still stay.
2: out. His name's Greg Paspatis. He lives in Alexandria, Virginia. He played for Boone uh, during Boone's last year, the year Boone got canned for his treatment of players. And yeah, he's still at it. Like, cause, because because um, sadly, um, a lot of the they're they're dropping like flies. The members of this team, uh, at least three deaths in the last two two or three months have been uh, of, of remember the Titans, the real world people. Which and these guys became you know they were big deals around here.
1: Can we talk about heavy metal parking lot? Oh, I love heavy metal parking lot. <laughs> Before you get to that, you have told me that. You think that the movie Days and Confused is a documentary?
2: It is my it is my <laughs> my upbringing,
1: yes. Uh, Incredi- incredible genius. What were like the early concerts that you remember going to?
2: Well, the first show I ever saw uh, without supervision was at RFK Stadium. It was uh, Ted Nugent, Aerosmith, <laughs> Leonard Skinner, and
1: Nazareth. You think and, that it, the bill's going to stop, but then it just keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> it
2: was like, you know... Dirt ball, dirt, dirt ball, Woodstock. It was unbelievable, and uh, like, and to this day, nine dollars and fifty cents, which was the same price I paid to see Led Zeppelin the next year. Which I tell, I, do you
1: understand like, how inflation works? Like, that's not the, <laughs> that's not really cheap. Nine dollars uh, and fifty cents for back for then. those. Oh, I th- I, for Nazareth.
2: <laughs> uh, well, here, a story. Like, I was in this is. I'll try to tell this quick. But I was in Fort Lauderdale last year, and uh, it turns out Fort Lauderdale is the hub of all cruise ships, and. Uh, there was a rock and roll cruise, rock and roll legends cruise leaving, leaving, leaving for – so I am, I'm in the, the lobby of the hotel and I see these old guys and I, and, uh, I know about the cruise and so I say, uh, who are you guys? And they say, oh, we're Nazareth. Oh, wow. And I go, oh, you know, my first show, that was, uh, that was uh, Nazareth and Larry Skinner. Nazareth. And I'm telling the story, like kind of excited. And I, that, like they're looking at me like they see they're having to face their, their, their past. Like this, if, if this fat old guy, you know, babbling about seeing them as a kid, like looking what I look like now, you know, what, what, what they must. Look. <laughs> anyway, the look on their face was priceless. By the end of my story, I was, uh, I was giggling at how much they despised me.
1: Uh, at least somebody remembered them. Come on, Nazareth! It's like uh, have a heart. Um, so this was a big part of your growing up was going to RFK Stadium and seeing Nazareth. That was the, the defining moment. And
2: and Skinner. When Skinner, you know, now they kind of stand for something negative. You know, the Confederate flag has become a, a symbol of hate, and uh, and a, and they they wave it. Other fans wave it proudly and stuff. So that you can't really. Have fun enjoying them. But they were they were great in 1976.
1: <laughs> so Heavy Metal Parking Lot is made by this guy, Jeff Krulick, local DC filmmaker. It, if you haven't seen it, it's very short. You should watch it. It's, it's the best 15 minutes you'll it, spend it, it, all day. It, it is. Um, parking Lot of the Cap Center and Landover at a Judas Priest show. And there is a quote. In a story you wrote about it for Deadspin, <laughs> where a guy says that thing is the citizen cane of wasted teenage metalness, which is a great quote <laughs> a
2: great, and and a great like the whole scene that is an amazing time capsule. It, it, and Jeff Krulick, another guy who should be way more famous than he is, the guy who made that, just had the idea to capture the moment. He went out there with with cameras and uh, and they it, it like it tells you a lot about America at the time of the economy and the diets of people. because this is metal was the kind of the the blue-collar music and and everyone's they don't have their shirts on and every one of them is ripped and skinny and nowadays you know like just before the the, the corn corn infused diets that we all are on now <laughs> uh, they look they look everybody you know we're not ripped we're not ripped
1: anymore that's the thing that stands out to you it's like you're you watch this and you're like there should be a heavy metal parking lot like uh, exercise video like that's that's what it looks like to you. <laughs> Like some people would be like, wow, these guys are real dirtbags. you're like, wow, they're in incredible shape. Dirtbags were in shape in this the 80s. This, this is inspirational. Um, is it just kind of you, – so you did and continue to do freelance concert reviews for, for The Post. Is it just like an accident of history that you ended up writing about sports rather than music as your main gig? Or what, do you think the well would have run dry if you were just doing music stuff every week?
2: I would never thought about that, but I, I just have always been able to write what I want to write about, and those are the two things that of my youth, sports and music, that I was you know, very passionate about, obsessed with. Hang out at record stores and sporting events.
1: So you've basically never grown up. You're I'm, just a, an overgrown child. Have, have any
2: of us? <laughs> I, all I know is myself, and yeah, I have not grown up at all. I mean, I, the same things that made me clench my fists as a kid make me clench my fists now.
1: The story about the Kids that ran away to meet Elvis. Was that a DC thing? I don't remember.
2: It was so yeah, a Cathedral on Forty Fifth Street Northwest. Yeah, the girls who got in the car at night and took took off. That story killed me, man. It was <laughs> it killed me. Uh, they got how cool? It was just so cool. The balls it took for these you know fourteen and sixteen year old girls. I believe they were to just. Steal their parents' car and try to get to Memphis to see Elvis Presley, and this is when he was dangerous. This is in right after he he's uh, on Ed Sullivan and introduced to mainstream America, and he's dangerous, and and they're going to go meet him. I thought that was incredibly cool. This is in- and, I, and it ruined it ruined one of their lives too. One, I mean, they both got kicked out of school for it. It was a large, a huge local story, and uh, it changed their lives. And it was so there was a lot of sadness to it.
1: If I remember this this one right, this was one that you like, knew about and talked about for a long time before you wrote? Like, I remember hearing the, like, McKenna anecdote version before – this was for The Post magazine, right? Correct. That you did? Yeah. Do you remember how you heard about that? Was that just, like, a thing that you read it, it, at the time? Is, or?
2: It was going through archives for Elgin Baylor stories. Oh, really? Yes, it was. It was an, – and uh, and – seeing that that was a 1956 clip that just happened to be on the same one of the same newspapers. And I saw that.
1: So I wrote a book called The Queen. You might remember from the intro. (laughs) Yes. To the podcast. Great book. Get it. Get it. And there's this site newspapers.com. In addition to like microfilm and stuff that I would get at the Library of Congress for stuff that wasn't digitally archived. And just... The stuff that you find adjacent to other stuff that you're looking for, I've found so many other leads and so many other stories that way. And I would encourage people just to like go on that site and just browse around. And it feels to me, I don't know if you agree, there were just so many more stories in the paper back then.
2: Just they're jammed – type small and they're jammed up against each other.
1: And, and stuff that's like enticing but not really fleshed out and you think like, all right, I need to like dig in and find out what really happened here.
2: Well, but I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm girls running away to meet Elvis, who would not be enthused by that? And the, the newspaper archives like newspapers.com and DC Public Library has an amazing newspaper archive. They're my new record stores. So you just go in there and browse. <laughs> you just keep looking and there's something – Something that'll get your interest every few seconds.
1: A thing that I also have a very distinct memory of is when YouTube first became a thing, just how obsessed you got with YouTube. (laughs) You would just, all day long, you would be like looking up like old shows that you went to see and you're like- like, that is not a thing that has not abated? No,
2: not at all. Because, I mean, it keeps piling up. My, my whole, you know, every show, I mean, every band that I saw as a kid, and I saw everybody, by now I've seen everybody. And all the shows from the 70s and 80s are on online. It's sort it's who, of, who wouldn't be enthralled by that?
1: So this is why you don't leave your house. It all, it all <laughs> makes sense. Well, it is, it's funny, like, I found this with research stuff is that on the one hand, so much stuff, I don't want to say anything, but a lot of stuff that you could, that's ever <laughs> existed has been digitized. But if a lot of people just stop at Google, and so if it's not on Google, it's, it's basically like it doesn't exist, even if it's one layer deeper. And some of that makes sense. Some of it's like subscription services or proprietary stuff. But there is a lot of stuff on the internet that you still have to dig for. And that's the part that's fun for me. I don't like writing. I like finding stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, yes, it's procrastination disguises reporting for my stories now. I just, I'd rather be in archives.
1: All right. Um, I'm contractually obligated to ask you about Dan Snyder, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the man who made you a star. Yes, he did. I owe him everything. How long were you writing about, or when did he buy the team? 1999. You were writing about him for more than 10 years before he sued you. Correct. And the precipitating event was this story in the city paper, The Cranky Redskins' Fan's Guide to Dan Snyder, which was aggregation of 10 years' (laughs) worth of McKenna columns about Dan Snyder in an alphabetical format. Some of the entries were um, Fan Appreciation Day, Gimmick used in 2006 by Snyder to draw people to FedEx Field, where he charged $25 to park to watch the team scrimmage and hear an address from Vinny Serrato. The parking charge was not mentioned in the advertisements the team produced for the event. I'm only going to read one more, which is my all-time favorite. Bankrupt airline peanuts. <laughs> what Snyder was selling to fans at FedEx Field. During the 2006 season, vendors offered shelled nuts in royal blue and white five-ounce bags adorned with the Independence Air logo. Problem. <laughs> (laughs) The airline had gone under about a year earlier. The supplier told Washington City Paper that it stopped shipping the airline's nuts before Independence Air went out of business. A spokesman for the Peanut Council told City Paper that to prevent rancidity, the recommended shelf life of a foil bag of -of out-of-shelf peanuts was... I'm going to go one year. About three months. (laughs) So there's a lot more of these in the article, but the thing that pissed... Snyder off. What, was it like an accumulation over ten years? Was he did he, he hate you before this? Yeah, he just wanted to get me fired. I'm, um, yeah, and then during that the
2: case, which was so surreal to be involved in that, but like lawyers had me look up at the archives, how many stories I had written, and they came up with four hundred and eighty-eight mentions of I've, stories mentioning Dan Snyder.
1: I found on which uh, appalls even me. I found yesterday when I was doing some McKenna research. That you can go on Scribed, which is this tool you can upload documents. there was some document that was like exhibits that were part of the trial that your side put up. And it's like exhibits 201 to 250. And it's just all like articles. I didn't realize that it had gone as far as you like putting together all these exhibits. Oh, the the case? Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. He bailed right before he was going to get crushed. He was going to get crushed a week later by the courts. So he just ran away.
1: Let's rewind a bit. Did you know that Snyder was awful from the moment he bought the team? Like how much of it was known or were people kind of optimistic? Like, oh, there's this new rich guy and he's going to make the team great.
2: Incredible optimism. Nobody knew any because there was a guy named Milstein who was considered too fraudulent milstein won the bid this guy named howard milstein he was awarded the team but the nfl rejected him as too fraudulent so then the jack and cook estate had to come up with another buyer ever the nfl was had a team without an owner there was all kinds of you know pressure on everybody and dan snyder was the going to be the local partner milstein was from new york and so dan snyder was going to be a minority partner so they just kind of gave him the team let him him take it over so milstein we have him to blame but there was definitely optimism. You know, a local guy, he, had, he, was, he grew up here. He, you know, he talked about his Redskins belt buckle. He was a fan. He was going to spend money at the time when free agency in the NFL was becoming a huge deal. So no, definitely optimism. And then, but then very quickly, he, he flipped it. And when he started charging to watch the, his team practice, which was unheard of, so many of the bad ideas for fans came from Dan Snyder. That's one of them. He was the first guy to charge for practice.
1: The parking thing, I remember, was another recurring McKenna feature where you also like triangulated between the bad parking stuff with the NFL team and with Six Flags, which Snyder also owned, like the different parking schemes would kind of. Feed back and forth between the franchises.
2: Another undertold story about Dan Snyder, and I I, I did my best, but nobody seemed to care (laughs) except me, is his ownership of Six Flags, which is just a debacle. He tried to, you know, squeeze every dime out of everyone who ever went to Six Flags. $45 haircuts, I think it was. He he tried to drive kids' haircuts for $45.
1: Do you think there's a connection between his rapaciousness and assholishness and the team being bad? Because generally, those things, you, you wouldn't think that just being a rapacious jerk would mean that your NFL team would be bad. It just means that you're like an NFL owner. It seems like fairly, even if he's like, a little bit worse. It's it's not like a – it's a difference in degree, not a difference in category, it feels like well, to me. I, th-
2: I think they, they definitely are tied – I mean by now for sure because people don't want to be associated with him. Uh, but at the beginning even, his attitude and, and rapacious is – I mean I don't know – if that's the right word that I'm looking for. But he thinks he's smarter than everybody. That was the attitude he came in with. He was going to do everything differently.
1: And he surrounds himself with yes men, like the people that are in charge of running this franchise. They seem to have been selected for willingness to tell Dan Snyder that he's right about everything. Yeah, the, those
2: who don't, don't, don't seem to last long. The guys who have their own personalities. But his system of being smarter than everybody did not work from the start. And that has definitely snowballed to now. No one wants to be around somebody who thinks they're smarter than everybody.
1: Um, I should have mentioned earlier the story time with Dave McKenna feature on, on Deadspin animated Tales in which Dave talks about his life. And there is one about the Snyder lawsuit where you talk about being defended by First Amendment hero Floyd Abrams. Yeah. Uh, surreality. S-
2: very surreal. Well, yeah. I can't, I've, ever, I've reached my limit on using the word. But yeah, the, the, the uh, Floyd Abrams, a, a guy who I, I delivered the Washington Post in the early 70s and when First Amendment issues were, were huge. Huge deals with uh, the Pentagon Papers and Watergate, um, really the, the hot topics. And, and Floyd Abrams was the First Amendment lawyer for the Pentagon Papers for the New York Times. And here I am in a room with him, and the first thing he tells me is that uh, Dan Snyder thinks I'm going to physically assault him, which <laughs> 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 was totally out of left field. And you know, I, I, I'm I'm incapable of physical of successfully physically assaulting anybody. At I point.
1: think I know the answer to this, but. Do you have any idea where that idea would have come from?
2: I do. I think it was a plan because he was getting Snyder was getting the crap beat out of him, public relations wise, and he wanted he had to come up with some.
1: Nobody took Snyder's side in this. Nobody. I don't. I don't recall.
2: Yeah, I mean, nobody who who I talked to. He Uh, claimed that he
1: claimed that you were like attacking his wife, who is a cancer survivor. He claimed that you uh, uh, he accused you of anti semitism. Because there was an illustration where he had devil horns on him.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't do the illustration. But yeah, he he was just throwing everything out there. He just wanted to get me fired and he tried to to squeeze the people who owned the paper by just throwing everything at him about what a bad person I was. They didn't know me at all. Not that I'm not a bad person, but <laughs> he just came up with the wrong
1: reasons for why I'm a bad person. So he is getting totally killed, and he thinks the way to win the public to his side is to say that you were going to physically no, assault no, him?
2: No, I think he thought the way to get me to a meeting, like they would, uh, that would broker a meeting, and, and once a meeting between us is held, he would say that I apologized for everything. He would make up something. He was just going to make something up about what – Uh, went on in that summit.
1: (laughs) And and you, you know, smartly, I feel like, refused to meet with him because you didn't want to give him ammunition. He would have probably, when you went to the meeting, you probably would have slipped and fallen and accused you of pushing pushing him (laughs) over.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or something. He would would have said, I apologize. And I wasn't, like, he didn't even get me for a name misspelling. I wasn't, I didn't say anything bad about his poor wife.
1: So when he drops the suit, he... Do you recall exactly what he said? Because he, he couldn't say that you had apologized or – He kind of uh, did. He, he was he like, we've agreed, to mo- <laughs> we've agreed to move on or like what did he say exactly?
2: I'm not specific. I mean, he definitely made stuff up though. He acted like there was some contrition on our part and there was zero contrition on our part.
1: Um, and – you have you said, and I think the Deadspin video that like this made you like this was this was uh, to the extent that you're a, <laughs> no, a superstar. Of journalism.
2: Anyone who knows, well, no, I didn't say that. But no, an, anyone any, anyone who knows me, uh, chances are that's why they they know something I've written. It's probably related to dance and I, or so. Thanks for the suit.
1: I guess he confirmed what an asshole he was by doing this. So he proved by suing you. He proved that even to a further degree that everything that you had written was a- about him was accurate. But do you wish that the suit had n- never happened or do you think it was like cool that you got to meet Floyd Abrams and that everyone it's, on the internet thought you were a hero?
2: It's definitely the latter is closer to the truth. Yeah, it was a great it was a great thing. Had had that happened today, you know, I was naive and and I believed in the system and like I knew well, This was
1: pre Hogan.
2: Correct. And I knew that his lawsuit was preceded by an attempt to you – know, it was just all an attempt to get me fired that didn't succeed and his lawsuit was the exact same stuff that he used to try to get me fired, which had already been vetted by our lawyers and everything and they, there was nothing there. And so once he sued, I, I had enough faith in the system, uh, you know, uh, rightly or wrongly, that I, I never ever – I thought there was zero chance we could lose. And then I ended up working at Deadspin, which lost a suit uh, to Hulk Hogan, which – you know, to which, had my case come afterward, I would be very scared because there was uh, there was nothing wrong in the story. Uh, there was no factual inaccuracies. Forever, whatever else you want to say about the, the the Hulk Hogan story, it was not factually inaccurate. And it's supposed to be this, this is a this is America, First Amendment. So
1: Floyd Abrams baby, Floyd Abrams.
2: <laughs> we should have had Floyd Abrams.
0: I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DW Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In
1: 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism.
2: We were really protesting our treatment
1: on the field.
0: Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story.
1: We became brothers that day when you did that to us.
2: We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: Before we get to the rest of my conversation with Dave McKenna, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, there will be more between me and Dave McKenna. Uh, We'll talk about his writing style and some more of his favorite stories. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. I think that one of the greatest things that you've done in your career is expose the airline peanuts thing, um, among among other Snyder atrocities. But seriously, like, I, I think one of the things that was the most important that you did and that you should be proudest of is exposing Kevin Johnson for everything that he did. Um, he had been accused of sexual abuse. This was like a this was a known thing before you wrote about it, right? Like, this had all been public. And this was a thing, like, in so many cases, like with the Bill Cosby thing, where it's written about, and then for whatever reason, for some people, they're just able to continue living their lives and accruing accomplishments and respect. And it's just kind of written out of their history. Do you remember how you got involved in the Kevin Johnson stuff?
2: I remember when he he was being portrayed as a good as a good guy for his work with the NBA players association is what started it. And I just had some recollection that he wasn't really a good guy. And I started, so I Googled a little and looked at the newspaper archives. And and again, it kind of goes back to the Elgin Baylor it's stories that, that aren't told enough or that people don't know. I was shocked that I did not know these tales about him. And the more I looked into it, like, uh, how did how has this guy gotten away with with this kind of behavior for so long? And and, and it's a, it's an awful reality of the powerful people being able to get away. The damage he did. Uh, I mean, you know, the, I, the the best stories I work on make me cry when I work on them, and and I cry when I think of the damage he did to one specific person. Um. Who, who who agreed to talk to me for those damn the the damage that he had done I you know I had to face because I I, I end up finding one of one of his uh, victims and she told me her story and finding her like a, 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 I was very excited to find her like you know locate her and figure out because her name hadn't been out there and and like I said journal I was very excited and then when I talked with her I was very I mean I, I had to face the damage that he had he had done to her and um, it it uh, you know, not, not that I'm a good guy or anything, but I'd like, I, I wanted to do her justice.
1: Yeah. Um, he did, man. And he was kind of drummed out of public life because of this. He declined to seek a third term as mayor of Sacramento. ESPN had this and God knows how this had gotten to the stage that it got to, that there was this kind of it was going to be like this puff piece, documentary about him, right? And they Correct. were what a great guy. And they, after you your story, they canceled the premiere and it's never aired.
2: Yeah, and, and that like showed me the power of Deadspin. Um, yeah, they canceled they canceled the movie. They announced it mere like four hours before Kevin Johnson's premiere party they had planned in his hometown of Sacramento, with a purple carpet for the Sacramento Kings instead of a red carpet, and all of the NBA. Uh, Luminaries were going to come in and ESPN luminaries uh, also to, to celebrate this guy and they canceled it and uh, that, that that you know, good for them.
1: Yeah. And I don't want to, I, I know the story that you wrote recently about the NBA scout who was a rapist. Um, I know that wrecked you too. So we don't Destroyed have to... Destroyed me. We don't have to <laughs> go down, but go down but that road.
2: But that, I had to face the damage that that our system also does to to people, like the victim where the, where the town of Saratoga Springs sided with this twenty six year old rapist and did everything bent over backwards to help him you know get out of town and have a, a great career uh, and against a fifteen year old girl foster child uh, estranged from her parents who was pregnant you know had to she had to face this pregnancy all by herself, and you know first they called her a liar that said you know the assault didn't happen. Then she's pregnant, so they they say she's the aggressor. They insinuate that, and the system never never helped her out. Like the 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 kid, you know, talking to her was she's she's heroic. She's heroic, and he's a creep.
1: I guess in both of those cases, these were people whose acts were either not known or not widely known. And that kind of allowed them to move through the world in a way that they wouldn't if people were widely aware. Is that for you kind of a a reason to do it is to give people information about who these people really were? Because I think it's really hard when you're thinking about asking victims to come forward. It's like, what are you, what are they getting out of it. Is this going to be good for for them? Are we doing this to so the perpetrator has to pay? Or are we doing this so the victim feels like they, they're they made whole somehow? By Again, this, this
2: is a, back to me not being a good guy. Like I, I am much more beholden to the story than to the people. I have to face that in stories like this. I, I, I want to tell the story. And I know I, I didn't know as much going into the Kevin Johnson story, but I know that the stories that I wrote about Kevin Johnson hurt people who he had hurt because it made them face it again. So I, I kind of knew in this story, like with, with the, the the Saratoga story that same, you know, obviously I, I had learned from, from the Kevin Johnson that this, it's not, it's not a, a happy subject for these people. So me telling it again, um, it's not, it's not going to bring them much joy. I, I do think, uh, in this case, they were very supportive uh, and, and of me telling it, and, and they definitely – the system screwed them over, so the system – I mean, that, that should uh, – I mean, again, I did it for the story. I did it because it was a story that fascinated me, but I do think it, uh, the system should be exposed.
1: <laughs> You're anti-system. I want to and take like a slightly hard turn to talk about having kids and – You've written a couple things, like you wrote about you and and your oldest son going to the greatest football game ever played. Maybe a slight exaggeration no, for No headline.
2: exaggeration at all. Ask anybody who was there.
1: <laughs> you also wrote about Adrian Danley, refing his uh, basketball game. You're a sentimental guy, as we've I, I we've heard on this <laughs> this podcast. Were you kind of anticipating how having kids would change your relationship to sports or did what is it like an accident that they've taken an interest in it did you force it upon them um because it's obviously been good for for bonding purposes everything in my life is an accident like i didn't plan any i haven't planned anything And,
2: and, and and one it's been amazing having kids. I'm I'm very old to have kids. I have a nine year old and a thirteen year old. I'm way too old to have that. They should I have they should be my grandchildren. <laughs> but it's it's a total blessing even when it's not a blessing. Uh, but I I did not anticipate. I did not think about how it would change. I did kind of not want to write about because some, some people write about their kids too much in sports. And <laughs> You're I really
1: stuck I, to your guns there.
2: I, I kind of didn't want to get such but, good content. But, yeah, but. Uh, it is it's, it, it like well, this high school football game we went to. You could uh, you know I can't go into I don't have time to go into it, but it was a, a local Catholic league, which I also write about too much high school league, and it was the championship football game, and it was
1: unbelievable.
2: And everybody there will back me up. The greatest game. There ever. There
1: is a right. hail mary appropriately 70 enough seventy yard hail mary Catholicism. Catholicism.
2: Yeah, and there's a YouTube out there. Back to me and YouTubes of the Gonzaga kids saying you know giving saying the Lord's prayer, <laughs> and that uh, that ends with the like in real time, this was filmed at the game. they're saying the Lord's Prayer because they know it was the last play of the game, and the the play unfolds while they're saying the Lord's Prayer, and the kid catches it as they finish the prayer and it is chilling it's fantastic.
1: it kind of took me by surprise a little bit, knowing your children when they like both became kind of psychotically obsessed with the n b a yeah and started like youtubing old videos and and stuff. Does that mean that they like care about stuff that you know about from back in the day? Do they ask you about? Elgin Baylor, or ask you about any, like, of the old crap that's in your brain?
2: Yeah, they do. I mean, it's mostly N- NBA 2K. I'm 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 so old. I'm old enough to hate video games. Uh, but NBA 2K, which was given to, to them by the other side of the family, uh, the stronger, smarter side, uh, <laughs> has worked out. Beautifully, like they, it, they it got them very interested in the history of basketball, uh, incredibly interested. So, like when they they were excited to meet Adrian Dantley, was as excited as me, and that, that that made me very very happy.
1: Yeah, there's a good picture of your kid with Adrian Dantley, and this was a, another recurring McKenna kind of feature because you'd written about Adrian Dantley, the NBA <laughs> Hall of Famer, being a crossing guard, which is one of one of that was a Deadspin thing, right? Yes, one of the like greater kind of random. Well, ex-athlete where are they now stories of all time and then later he turns up revving your kids basketball game
2: at a, a rec club Jellif, that I had written about for a game played in by Adrian Dantley against John Thompson's St. Anthony's high school team when Adrian Dantley was with Tamatha. so that history was history everywhere Yeah, that was my obsessions kind of all showing up at the same place
1: thanks Dave this was fun well you're the sweetest that is our show for today that's all we got for you our producer is Melissa Kaplan to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out go to slate.com slash hang up and you can email us at hang up at slate.com if you're still here then maybe you would want to hear a little bit more of Dave McKenna how could that possibly be enough we'll talk a little bit more in our bonus segment about his life and times and career
2: but the dead balls era they did they rejected that was my most blatant attempt to come up with a, with a t-shirt phrase. I know it failed because a year, I went back a year later and Googled it and it got eight Google hits.
1: Eight. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Elgin Baylor. And thanks for listening.